0: Welcome to another episode of the Sweaty Oracle Show. I first want to give a word from our sponsors, me. As some of you may have known, I had a rough summer and was briefly a little bit homeless. (laughs) All my fault. Um, And all my belongings since then have been in a storage unit in New York, and I would like to go get them in the next two weeks. But to do that, that requires money. So I am looking to raise like 500-600 so I'm able to travel to New York and accomplish this because I would really like to have all of my earthly possessions and all of my clothes. Again, all these clothes you guys see me wearing if you ever wonder why I'm exclusively wearing Muppet t-shirts, it's because I only have the childhood stuff that was here in my childhood home, and I used to sleep in those Muppet t-shirts as a kid, and now they're weirdly fashionable, which is great because they all, they're all they they are all I have my hands on right now. <laughs> and I would like a Christmas where that is no longer true. So uh, if we reach $500 by next week in donations, or if somebody donates $500 or more, I will go on TikTok Live and perform all of Les Mis all of it i will perform all of lay mis well maybe i won't perform all of lay mis but i'll i'll go <laughs> i'll go i'll go on tiktok live and i'll do something special for the holidays not that that's really an an incentive uh, i'll also email you something really i'll email you stuff that's not on any trade list in the world as long as you include your email in uh in the subject line of the payment. Speaking of which, I can accept payment through PayPal or cash app. Uh, the accounts for both are juicy theater tea at gmail.com. That's theater with an R E. I uh, also think about subscribing to the Patreon. That's another great way. There's all kind of great things on there that people like you aren't supposed to have your hands on. But most of the action in the Patreon comes from the exclusive Discord, where it's just popping with wildness and uh, illicit theater recordings. (laughs) So uh, if you ever thought about donating to make a Christmas miracle happen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it because it has caused a lot of strife. And issues not being able to have access to my things. I uh, for, have been hearing these rumblings again, and I don't doubt them because she's wanted this for years. And she's been trying to get this set up for years. It looks like Audra McDonald will be playing Audra McDonald. <laughs> I'm having a day. Audra McDonald will be playing Blanche in a production of Streetcar Named Desire that's coming to Broadway And this has been a long gesticulated thing. Originally, she was going to do it with Adam Driver as Stanley and Sam Gold directing. We'll get to that in a minute. My personal history with that. (laughs) And then she was going to do it at the Wolf Trap Theater Festival with the director from Slave Play and I think Bobby Calivari as Stanley, which I'm not down for the Bobby Stanley. Not down for the Bobby Stanley. I was going to direct Streetcar in a bar in Brooklyn. I was going to do it immersively in a bar, and then I was told I couldn't get rights because it was coming back to Broadway, and that was the Adam Driver production that didn't end up happening. And I've been thinking recently, if I want to toy with Streetcar again, my uh, grand idea for Streetcar, I don't want to give all of it away, but was to perform it kind of immersively in a bar with the action all around the Audience, uh, and one of the big things would be during the, uh, abuse scene, the poker game scene where things get bad, have all of the lights go out and instruct the audience, uh, to pick up a flashlight, like instructing the audience in their program and at the beginning of the show that when things go pitch black dark, that they're encouraged to pick up the flashlight on their table and, and shine it around the playing space. Uh, and I have this friend who's developed these GPS-powered, fl- not powered, but GPS-controlled flashlights that will only turn on when pointed at the right thing. And I kept thinking about having the abuse only lit by the audience. And, and if the audience does find it that particular night with the light, they're kind of weird voyagers. Voyeurs. And uh, if they don't, is Blanche lying about it? I, I don't know. I thought it added an interesting new dimension. There's also another big hook with this production, but I can't tell you all my secrets. Streetcar is one of those shows I will always welcome on Broadway. It's weird to me when people complain about like shows like Streetcar or Gypsy being done too much because I don't think those shows – can be done too much. I think there's always a reason to see another director and another set of performers' interpretation of that material, because the material is so densely packed. There are infinite ways to interpret it. So I always welcome. Uh, I always welcome shows like Streetcar back. But selfishly, I want it to be Sam Gold. And I know what some of you think are thinking. Some of you are doubting my taste. And I get it, Macbeth and King Lear were kind of kind of rough, not not the best, but his streetcar uh, streetcar. but his uh, glass menagerie is one of the most transformative pieces of theater I've ever seen before in my life. I still can't believe what it did to me. Uh, and I would like to feel that again. And I think he could make me feel that way. What's sad to me is that new plays are just not making money on Broadway. Some big revivals aren't even making money on Broadway. It, it 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 makes me sad because I I advocate for more plays on Broadway, but at the same time Broadway has to make money and plays just aren't bringing it in. Sometimes plays with big stars just aren't bringing it in. Did Angels in America recoup uh I don't know if Angels in America recouped or not. The revival with Andrew Garfield. Speaking of which, am I the only one? I loved that revival, but am I the only one who thinks that Andrew Garfield sounded a little bit like Edwin as the Mad Hatter? <laughs> uh, just just a little. Hello, oh my, <laughs> Alice is an angel. It was, it was a little, it was a little much. It was a little much, but I really loved that revival. And, uh, I saw it on a two show day and the theater was like surprisingly empty. And this was before the Tony awards. I was really, I was really shocked when I saw network with Brian Cranston. I got surprisingly cheap tickets and the audience was surprisingly empty when I saw it. And that was that was really, really, really shocking to me. Even the biggest plays really aren't aren't doing it for people anymore. If Brian Cranston is not singing, no one gives a flip, Brian <laughs> His performance and network was earth shattering. And I get it in a way, we are going into a recession. We're already in a recession. Some people just haven't <laughs> noticed yet. And people don't have the expendable money anymore and they really haven't for years you know what i mean and when they go see broadway broadway is so exorbitantly expensive they want to see broadway with a capital b they want the spectacle they want the singing they want the dancing they want the bigness that usually comes with a musical and in a way they should for those ticket prices like i get it like, I totally get it. It sucks, but I get it. When you've priced your product that high, your audience demands it fire at all cylinders. You know what I mean? You know, what's, you know what was the saddest thing to me? Uh, I went and saw Passover's first night on Broadway, which was the first time a Broadway show was performed after the pandemic. And I got tickets for next to nothing, and the audience was not full, which both speaks to Broadway's play problem and Broadway's racism problem. Uh, Flat out, it feels like the elite in the Broadway community, who are mostly white, and they are all upper class, because if you can afford... To go see everything that opens in a season, you you are upper class. It's made up by mostly chuggy white people, (laughs) and those chuggy white people treat black work differently than they treat white work, and they hold the work featuring and starring people of color to a much different standard. You know, some people got mad at me for uh, talking about the fact that there used to be an industry discord where people used to sit and bitch. And I never named the name of the discord or anybody in it, but people got mad that I even mentioned there was a discord. And that pissed me off. So now I'm talking about more I experienced in it. Because uh, these are the most, mostly, the most elite of the Broadway community. They're all rich. They were all mostly rich white people with the exception of, I think, one rich white people. And I would listen to the way they would talk about works about People of color compared to the way they would talk about white works. And, and it was shocking how much vitriol was thrown at at the, the plays about black people. Like shocking, disgusting. But, but at the same time, it was like I've, al- I've always known you people feel this way. It was just kind of shocking to sit and read it. I think about the way Broadway World reacts when a black performer demands their tweet treated equitably. Uh, like I think about the Tanya Pinkins, Jesse Green situation. I think about ta- I've been watching how Broadway World reacts to Tanya Pinkins for 20 years almost. Wow, it's really been 20 years almost. And the way the Broadway elite react to just black performers wanting to exist in the space is, 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 is the, the Broadway fan community as a whole reaches out with hatred and, and, and verbal violence. And no one ever really says anything. And if you call it out, you know, the, the, the vitriol gets turned to you. I've always wondered why that is. And I think I know what that is, why that is. Uh, th- those people exist in a white upper class bubble, the widest upper class bubble. Any work that is not about that white upper-class bubble challenges the very existence of their bubble because they know deep down that their bubble is bad. They know their bubble's racist. They know their bubble's elitist. They know their bubble represents the worst forms of capitalism the forms that take advantage of others. So seeing any work that challenges any of those things flips them the fuck out because it makes them feel like their entire way of life is about to implode. It makes them question the morals of their existence, at least their existence of of privilege and money. And they hate that. I've seen it firsthand. Really makes you wonder. If Broadway does need to completely crash so that it comes back with these people not being considered the elite of Broadway. You know, every week or so, I uh, look at the ticket sales for Sweeney Todd. I just pick a couple of random days, like pre-opening and post-opening. It's not selling as well as one might think. I, I always thought when Sweeney Todd came back, we would have a director kind of reinterpret the piece through casting. But no, it's still just two talented white people, but I mean just two kind of boringly picked white people. We could have had Amber Gray and Raul Esparza. We could have had Joshua Henry. Who could give a, a take on Sweeney through different lens. Cons- <laughs> especially considering that Sweeney is a character who's wrongfully imprisoned by a corrupt justice system. There are possibly some parallels there that Josh Groben can't exactly uh, connect with. I don't know. <laughs> but no. It's Josh Groban and Anna Lee Ashford and Alex Timbers. The whitest of the white. And most of us, the supporting cast I've heard, if it's true, it could easily not be true what I've heard. Things change all the time. Is white. And it just brings me to to why. You know what I mean, and I and I kind of like that even the Broadway elites are not rushing to buy tickets to this. I know the Broadway elites are not rushing to buy tickets to this because of, like, they're not not because of the fact that it's all white people. But 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 I'd like that this is the subtle uh, reality. <laughs> That a very white and what I assumed expect to be boring, predictable revival of Sweeney Todd, uh, just gets kind of pushed under the rug. Wouldn't be it? Wouldn't be the worst thing. That's basically what happened to the Music Man. Another like almost exclusive. I think it was all white leads. uh, At least when it opened, I have no idea who's in it now. Um, all white leads, all the most boringly, predictably cast people in in the world, and it was met with the resounding eh, eh, eh. Some parts of it were met with which eh, was Sutton Foster. I will never understand the career of Sutton Foster. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know I'm being a dick. For like 10 years, I have called her the world's luckiest chorus girl because that is what I truly, truly, from the bottom of my heart, think she is talent level wise. And I'm not commenting her on her as a person. I'm sure she's very sweet, but I just don't get it. I've seen her in multiple things. I just don't get it. I think she is actively bad in the music, man actively bad in the Music Man. And I do not know what they were thinking casting her in that because the show was going to sell tickets regardless because of Hugh Jackman. They didn't really need the help of the name Sutton Foster. You know what I mean? She, the, the, the producers of that cast recording, in a way, did her dirty, but in another way, accurately preserved how bad she sounded, Which which maybe needed to happen. I'm going to take a drink of water. Woo! So, God, I, uh, for years, you know, this, and I, and I know I'm not the only person who had this prediction. The second Bob Iger mysteriously left the Disney company, it felt like he was setting Bob Chapek up for failure. You know what I mean? It felt like he was, he, he kind of saw the writing on the wall with this COVID thing and decided that he, Iger, Was not going to be the fall guy when the company inevitably took a tumble because of it. Uh, Hired a bumbling idiot to replace him right before COVID swoops in like a thief in the night. Watch that man build horrible equity with fans, talent, the board, Imagineers, guest and everyone in between and then swoop back in as soon as the pandemic is essentially over I know COVID's not over but the, but the pandemic capital P can't find poop paper part is over you know what I mean swoops back in to save the day and then at the end of his two year tenure runs for office under the whole like banner of I saved Disney and now I'll save California or now I'll save America or now I'll save whatever. The only thing that shocks me about Iger coming back is I thought he would only have a one year contract so that he could run for president because there's been pretty credible rumors probably planted by Bob Iger's PR team that those are Bob Iger's aspirations, which horrors upon horrors! If you, if you guys vote in Mr. Mickey Mouse, but I can see it happening. I, 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 nothing. You, I will not put anything past the American people anymore. I won't put anything past the voting public. Herschel Walker got this far. There's really no telling our rhyme, our reason. Bob Iger could probably say everybody who votes for him gets a premium Mickey ice cream bar and win in a landslide knowing uh, (laughs) a large population of this country and the cult religious-like fixation on their rat god Mickey. But the the I saw a meme that really sums up how I feel, uh, which was a "Make America Great a hat, Great Again Hat, but it was like "Make Bob Iger Great Again" or something. It was implying that like the energy around Bob Iger's return, especially if you're friends with a lot of cast members and a lot of Disney people, is is <laughs> it does feel weirdly maga like. <laughs> It's weird to me that all the cast members think Bob Iger cares about them. Bob Iger doesn't give a fuck about you. Bob Iger was the one who was CEO when he was making almost a billion dollars in bonuses while his employees weren't even making $10 an hour across the board. While his employees were dying while living in their cars working full time for Disney. If you think Bob Iger is, is your savior, you and the Disney company might deserve itself. And yes, I know Stockholm Syndrome, but like come on, you guys. Come on. That man does not care if you live or die. He probably has a secret insurance policy out on you as soon as you start working there, and he's probably not hoping for the best. (laughs) There are no good people with that amount of money. He, cast members, I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to you, Disney employees. Listen to me. He has that much money as a direct result of how little money you have on the back of your labor, on the back of your poverty. Shame on him. Renounce that man. Stop getting on Facebook and Twitter and acting like Jesus Christ has returned from the dead after three days. Stop it. Bob Iger ideologically hates you. <laughs> Bob Iger sees you as nothing but a consumer. Bob Iger sees cast members and employees as nothing but something to be consumed. It's really been weird seeing the deification of this man just because Bob Chapek was so bad. Bob Iger is going to do some kind of fan service shit in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to assume it's either getting rid of or heavily modifying the parks reservation system that everyone fucking hates. But I also think he's going to announce... Something that's like really on, early on in the uh, imagineering process, and announce something that's like totally fan service, like Journey into Imagination being turned into a not disgrace again, or the People Mover coming back to Disneyland. He's gonna do something that's going to uh, keep his love streak with the public and the cast members going. This is just my plea for you people to be smarter than that and say thank you, but you still suck. He's not your friend. He's not your friend. He is the reason you are in the position you're in financially. He's driving the big, oh my god, there's a giant spider on my fucking ceiling. Oh shit! Oh shit! Oh fuck! 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 Fuck. Oh, fuck! Fuck! It's so big! Fuck! 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 Oh fuck! Oh, shit! I'm still recording. Oh, fuck! I'm leaving it in. Ah! Ah! I can't fucking do it! I can't fucking do it! Oh, I'm flipped out! Shit! You're about to listen to me call my mother to kill this fucking spider. I'm not even fucking kidding. I'm 31 years old. Hey, mom! She's in the shower! She's in the shower! She can't! Fuck me! Fuck my dick! Fuck! Fuck my dick! Okay, I'm still here! Fuck my dick! Fuck my dick! Okay, we're gonna get through this. We're going to get through this. I'm just going to have to end its life. But I'm scared. What if it kills me? <laughs> I'm so I'm so big and it's so little. And I'm horrified at the idea of getting within 22 feet of it. Oh, wait a minute. Is there a vacuum cleaner? No, I don't have a vacuum cleaner. Shit. I did it. Uh, I did it. I got it. It's gone. Did not think this was the (laughs) direction the podcast was going to go. (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy. Life comes at you pretty fast. Stop and take a look. You're going to miss it. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Wow. So that was a five-minute segment called Sweaty Oracle Kills a Spider. That wasn't actually a spider. It was actually a water bug. I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, God, I have no idea if I'm going to cut that out or not. Oh, my God. I have no idea if I'm going to cut all that out or not. Oh, my God. Where were we? What were we talking about? I'm gonna live and live now. Get what I want my eyebrows. I'm gonna eat all the tang. I'm going to go bang, bang, bang. Hey, Mr. Butthole, here I am. I'm so stupid. Hold on, I gotta stop recording for a second to find my cell phone that I lost in all that melee. Well, I took about a 20-minute break. I had to go pee twice from all of that stress. Got some throat coat tea that I'm sipping on. Uh, Took about eight puffs from a gas station (laughs) Delta 8 pin. So, uh, we're starting the podcast back in a much more mellow PBR type place. Who kn- PBR. <laughs> PPS. NPR. NPR is what I'm looking for. We're starting back in a much more M- NPR type place. Calm, cool, and collective. It's time for a Grey Gardens revival with Jane Krakowski as Little Edie. Am I right or am I right? I'm right. Right? I have a feeling we're going to see Jane back on Broadway very, very, very soon. <coughs> there is a uh, revival of Pal Joey that's coming. Like I, I don't know when it's coming, but I know it's coming within a two-year period. And I have a weird feeling that Jane is actually cast as the bewitched, bothered, and bewildered lady. And the only reason I'm excited for this Pal Joy revival is because Savion Glover is directing as well as choreographing. Which I think sounds uh, very, very, very interesting. So that'll be fun when that happens. I would love if Jane played that role, but I just need Jane back on Broadway in some capacity. Remember when they got so close to signing Jane to reopen Chicago as Roxy? Like, so close that, like, trades, myself, and other rumor organizations were all reporting it? And then, of course, those producers dropped the ball, probably because they tried to pay her in box tops for education and Dr. Pepper's knowing how cheap they are. <laughs> oh, but you have to hand it to them. The show is still open, I guess. Mm. They really uh could have turned into the woods, into the theater version of that. I say it all the time. But they kept the ticket prices way too high, and there just wasn't interest in tickets that high when Sarah Bareilles left. That was just... The reality of the situation, I would love to try to see it when I'm in the city collecting my stuff because I think the new casting for The Witch is the first casting that has made me excited at the prospect of seeing it, but I don't know. It just makes me more and more and more uh, cynical, I guess. Into the Woods was doing so well when it first opened on Broadway. I really thought they had struck gold and found something very, very special. And I honestly think the reason that the gold turned to sand was was, was simply greed. This is when people tell me that this is a full. People argue with me in the comments and try to tell me that this is a full production of Into the Woods. It's not. It is, it is a dressed-up concert of Into the Woods, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as the price point reflects it. I would pay Jordan Roth's prices for Terry Gilliam's uh, Bath London production. Not Bath London. Is that how you said? No, Bath England. I don't know how to speak British. Production of Into the Woods because that's a full production of Into the Woods, a lavish, gobsmackingly bold version of Into the Woods. This is I don't want to say a very serviceable Into the Woods. This is a this is a good into the Woods. This is a good into the Woods stage concert. I just think the prices should reflect the fact that it's a good into the woods stage concert. You know what I mean? Mm. But I did love how happy all of theater TikTok was the first time uh, they heard Sarah Bareilles justify the beans. That was a fun moment where everybody was together. Huh? What a rare, beautiful time for theater TikTok. <laughs> I talked about it uh, in a video But there is a rumor I got in my inbox. By the way, feel free to continue to send in any rumor, blind item, anything you want to report on. It will be reported 100% anonymously, as always, to JuicyTheaterTea at gmail.com. Just a little plug. Anyway, I got an email telling me that Disney was really working on a Monsters, Inc. musical. And like... I don't think it's the worst idea in the world. I don't really have anything else to say about it rather than what I've already said, which is it's not the worst idea in the world. Um, And I hope because the team behind it is the same team that did Sesame Street the musical and Winnie the Pooh the musical. I hope that unlike those two shows... The performers will be paid a fair and equitable and livable rate because for the Winnie the Pooh off Broadway musical and for the Sesame Street off Broadway musical, those people were paid peanuts. were paid nothing, a low rate even for non equity off Broadway, which is a hundred percent greed as they were produced by the Disney Company and Sesame Workshop. Complete bullshit that those mega corporations could not. I mean, they should have, requ- I know they were, they had an outside producer, a Rockefeller. Of course, it's a Rockefeller dicking people with money. Another forever uh, looping Morbius strip of 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 the rich exploiting the poor for their jollies and for their gain. But Disney and Sesame Workshop could have easily required that the performers were paid a fair, equitable equitable and livable rate or they would not license their property. It's very nasty. So quite honestly, I could give two fucks about any show that those people are involved with unless they show that they have changed their ways for that production. You know what I mean? But when, when I made the video, Somebody, I also said I don't know if Randy Newman is going to be involved in the score, but I kind of hope he is because I always thought Randy Newman had a really good musical theater score in him. I had no idea until people commented on it that Randy Newman's Faust, 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 Faust existed until people commented on it if Randy Newman wrote a musical in the 90s and a concept recording was made of Faust and it is absolutely tremendous at least the concept recording is absolutely tremendous and now i have a goal to play satan in Randy Newman's Faust i really think that's a show that could come to broadway it has it has the it ha, oh, i don't when i say could come to broadway i mean that the quality of the score is worthy of Broadway. Not that there's any chance that it's coming to Broadway. Because at this point, I don't think there's any chance that it's coming to Broadway. Encores did a production of it in 2014. And I would have assumed, if that would have taken off, that would have been the only chance it had of coming to Broadway. But you still never know. You never, ever, 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 ever know. mm-hmm I thought this season on Broadway was going to be so, so, so interesting. And really it's just kind of turned very predictable and, uh, boring. I know there are still a few surprises left around the corner, wink roundabout. But I don't know. It's just so boring to me. I know I've ranted on this before, uh, like this subject before, but it really bothers me that the who's Tommy is coming back to Broadway with Des Mackinoff reprising his role as director. Number one, because Des Mackinoff wrote in the redemption of a child rapist, the unearned redemption of a child rapist character. Not that you could ever earn redemption for that, but also because like, I'm just sick of just of this revival of a production shit. I, I, I hate it, I loathe it with every fiber in my being, I think it is lazy, I think it is pointless, I think it is tired, I think audiences know and they don't give a fuck, audiences didn't really give that much of a fuck about the Cabaret Revival revival, because it felt like passe, because it was! Des has been saying he's going to update it so it's a now thing, and I'm just like, yeah. Yeah, old man, you're the person to do that. No. There is a way to bring Tommy to the stage and bring its grit back and bring nuance to it and set it as now, but it's not Des Makinoff. It's certainly not Des Macanoff. It's someone like Michael Arden. It's honestly somebody like I hate to say it because I overhype him all the time. It's Evo Van Hoove. and 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 he could use, you know, so many allegories to screens and mirrors and and and, and, and such. And he would actually I think bring grit back to it, but my god, that original Tommy Cass recording is so fucking corny. It's cornier than Carol Channing's poop. <laughs> And if you guys don't know that story, there is an old urban legend that Carol Channing's microphone came on while she was going to the bathroom offstage during one of the tours of Hello, Dolly. And the audience heard, Corn? I don't remember eating corn. <laughs> I don't even know if you could understand what I said because that impersonation was so bad. It was corn. I don't remember eating corn. I have no idea if that story is true. Uh, You want to know another one of my absolute favorite uh, Broadway urban legends? And I don't really know if this is an urban legend because it's documented. My mom every year used to get me one of the Playbill Broadway yearbooks for Christmas, which was like a big directory laid out like a high school yearbook of all the shows that played that season and everyone's headshots. uh, I really love them. I mean, there was also always like a part at the end of it where people in the cast would share stories from the year. And one of the years I have it, one of the cast members at Fenma, the opera shares this story that I would give anything to have witnessed. I mean, like just anything. If there was a bootleg hiding around. So during the final lair scene, where Phantom, Christine, and Raoul where Raul first shows up uh, down once more in the dungeon of his dark despair, or whatever those corny-ass lyrics are, the noose did not come down, which is a vital plot point, because that is how all of the stakes raise. The Phantom gets a noose around his neck. So, according to the story, the Phantom and Raoul look at each other, and then the Raul throws himself against like the great fence that's behind him on the set and goes electric fence <laughs> and then continues to perform the rest of the song shaking and convulsing on that grate as if he's trapped on an electric fence. Don't make her lie to you Can you fucking imagine? How do you get through it? If you're the Phantom, or the Christine, I would give anything. For there to be footage, I would even take a soundboard. I would even take being able to imagine the visuals, if I could hear it. My God. What I would give. The ephemeral nature of theater, huh? <laughs> mm. You know, I I really don't like the score for Phantom of the Opera. I just find it boring to be honest, but how Princess staging is so fucking electric and so fucking exciting, I think everyone is gonna find that in, like, a couple of years when they bring a cheaper production of Phantom to Broadway by that Lawrence motherfucker who does all the new cheap versions of Andrew's shows, you'll find, at least a lot of you will, at least those of you, uh, th- those of you with, with smarty pants brains <laughs> will find that how prince's staging is like 65 to 80% of the reason that Fenma the opera had any popularity how prince like i i i think it's important for pe- for like people who want to make theater and people who want to direct theater i think it's or, or produce theater i think it's important to go see the Hal Prince production of Fenma the Opera on Broadway because it's someone who took a mediocre show and made it the most exciting theatrical event of, a, of, of its time, of, of history at this point, the most exciting theatrical event history still has ever seen. I, I think a lot of the longevity is in that Hal Prince staging And I kind of think it's revolting uh, for it to close. Especially because we all know a cheaper version will be back on Broadway within like five years. I have on good authority that the Hal Prince staging is going to do a final U.S. tour after Broadway. Which is good. That's good. But it's just incredibly sad to me that now the original Phantom staging is going the way of the original Les Mis staging. I was fucking horrified when I went and saw uh, the second Broadway revival of Les Mis with Alfie Bow, Alfie Bowie? Alfie Bowie! Alfie, 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 Alfie! Alfie, Alfie. I was fucking horrified at the staging of that revival. Les Mis is arguable. Les Mis and Avenue Q both came into my life at the same moment, and they both made me want to really take theater seriously. Even though I was already doing a bunch of theater shows, that's what made me love the theater. Uh, I, I saw Les Mis with my eighth grade class, and when that stage started spinning, I was fucking hooked. I I, I was fucking sucked in, and that staging just enveloped me, and I got to see it again years later, and it enveloped me even more, and I realized a lot of my love for Les Mis was that original staging, and maybe, you know, I'm all for like a radical retelling, a restaging of Phantom. Or Les Mis, where somebody you know stages a modern day Les Mis, which is something I would love to do, uh, or, or takes a completely different take on Phantom, but the Les Mis that that came in after the original production closed wasn't some divinely artistically inspired production it was just a cheapening of the original it was trying to run the original production as cheap as possible so without any of the special effects without half of the orchestra and without any aspect that made the original interesting i i, I that's the reason it's not because a new staging of a of a legacy show comes in it's because i know the new staging is just going to be a lazy hack job of the original just enough so that the original creative team don't get royalties anymore. Because from what I could gather, that's largely what Les Mis closing in London was about. It wasn't because their numbers were dropping or anything like that. They was still doing very about the same as it's doing now. It was because Cameron McIntosh didn't want to pay royalties to the original creative team anymore. Which is fucking nasty. It's nasty. If I remember correctly, uh, Cameron McIntosh is also the one that said casting trans people is a gimmick. I thank God every day for his continual irrelevancy. And then Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he did it again recently, keeps making these sly little comments. It's like, I would ca- I'm would. not going to do a British dialect. That's like he keeps saying that he would cast a trans person as long as they could sing the score exactly as written, and that's just such a cheap shot to me. It's just a smug way of saying uh, unless there is a outlier, no, and it it just completely gets under my skin. There there is an incredible production of Jesus Christ Superstar somewhere. Uh, with, with gender swapped roles and I'm not saying casting trans people as gender swapping. I'm kind of changing subjects, but for that to happen, I truly think you should change the keys and he will never, ever, ever allow that, <laughs> but he only has what? 20 years tops. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> That's terrible. I, you know, I should own Andrew Lloyd Webber. But let's not forget, I may have said this before, that Andrew Lloyd Webber was the only person during the pandemic fighting vocally in the press to get theater reopened. I don't think we've still heard a word from Jordan Roth about the COVID period because he was partying on Fire Island, I presume. He didn't care. Andrew was at least trying to get things reopened, even if he was suggesting crazy things like spraying everybody with disinfectant. You got to hand that to the dude. But I think Andrew and I fundamentally uh, disagree sometimes artistically. Like, I am obsessed with Tom O'Horgan's original production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, obsessed with it. There is a full description of the production in a book that I have, and it's just amazing. Judas, at the end, during Superstar, came down on giant stained glass butterfly wings wearing a golden loincloth. Jesus made his first entrance shooting out of the ground in a golden chalice. Gethsemane was performed as the ground below Jesus rose in the air to reveal Jesus standing on top of a box that contained the diorama of the entire universe wild 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 shit i'm obsessed with it i think it's maybe the only time superstar was staged in in the right way because in my mind the challenge with jesus christ superstar is you have to do something so wild with it that the audience forgets that they know all of the plot points that the audience forgets that this is the most arguably one of the most famous stories of all time. I think you have to do something outlandish with it to achieve that from an audience. Anyway, Andrew Lloyd Webber called the opening night of that the worst night of his life. (laughs) And since then, he seems to have been on a continual dumbing down of Jesus Christ Superstar. The uh, production that played Regent's Park and that toured the United States, and that is touring the United States, that's kind of an outlier. Uh, Those productions rock. But, like, there was, like, a 30-, 40-year period where Andrew was really, it felt like, trying to dumb down, or at least, like, take all the grit out of it. And what makes Jesus Christ Superstar, what made it a cultural moment in the early 70s, was that original concept album was like a symphony w- with grit. You know what I mean? You have Joe Cocker's band, uh, the Grease Band, just fucking going wild on top of a symphonic orchestra. And those two wild juxtapositions are what made Jesus Christ Superstar so infectious at the time. It, it to continue to like take the rock and roll elements out of it and continue to make it more of a symphonic piece and more played as written you know what i mean it it, it just has con- th- that is why Jesus Christ Superstar has never been able to have a cultural moment again that's why all revivals on broadway have flopped uh that's why most revivals of Jesus Christ Superstar flop because they don't make the audience forget what they know at the beginning of the story. That's also the challenge of a good Romeo and Juliet it tells you the ending. You have to make the audience at the beginning. You have to make the audience forget that they already know the ending. And I would say the, that, that challenge with Jesus Christ superstar is a zillion times harder. And directors haven't even been thinking in that direction, which is why I am just like waiting on bated fucking breath for Evo's production in Amsterdam. Evo, Evo, Evo Van hoove <laughs> Evo Van hoove Uh, I will do anything to be there next year for that. No, it's two thousand and twenty-four. I have a minute. I will do anything to be there for that. Lie, cheat, steal. I have to be. It's my destiny. Because I think he might be the person who gets Jesus Christ Superstar right. There's also... Oh, I'm going to have to Google his name. This might be T. There's a major... There's a major... uh, Bear with me for a second. There's a major Broadway revival of... Not Broadway, but like its region. It'll be Broadway scale. Revival of Jesus Christ superstar that's happening at a happening at a regional house with a director, uh, a choreographer. Oh man, I can't think of the name. Hold on, give me one second. Is Sergio Tre Trejo? I think I hope I pronounced his name right. Is Sergio Trejo, who? Uh, ooh, his resume does not give me too much confidence who uh gave us Memf- gave us Memphis the musical <laughs> and the worst revival of Guys and Dolls that has ever played a professional stage which was directed by Des Macanaugh who we talked about is doing Tommy well That's not the best news. <laughs> but as long as it's a wild new ch- take, I, I I say bring it on. I just don't know if this is going to be uh, the person to bring it to us. But I want it to be. Prove me wrong. Make me seem like a fucking asshole. I want it to be so bad. I am always down for as many wild and outlandish productions of Jesus Christ Superstar Uh as, as the country can hold, which I think is infinite. Here's a piece of Broadway uh, trivia I bet most of you are not really aware of. Did you know Quentin Tarantino starred in a Broadway play in uh, the play adaptation of Hitchcock's Wait Until Dark? Is that not the wildest piece of fucking information you've ever heard? Is it not fucking wild that you probably didn't know that and right now you're, you're, you're frantically trying to Google to see if I'm bullshitting or not because it seems like bullshit? How could Quentin be in a production of anything where he couldn't dictate an actress show her feet? You know, I'm a documented foot guy. I love uh, stinky, sweaty feet. He, he, he. But you know what I fucking detest with every fiber of my being? I think it is such an abuse of power, and I think it's almost a form of assault for a director to use that power to fulfill a fetish fantasy, which is what Quentin Tarantino continually does. I mean Jesus Christ it, didn't he was it Penelope Cruz who who did he make suck who who's told that he suck who's told that he direct that he would suck It was either Penelope Cruz or uh or uh oh I can't remember but but regardless of who it is that's Selma Hayek I think it might have been Selma Hayek I, I honestly cannot think of a more vile and grotesque thing. Except for maybe Dan Snyder doing it to fucking children. And it also always makes me fucking mad that it's foot guys. Because they give they give foot guys a bad name. They give people like me who consume their feet. Who consume looking at and engaging with feet ethically a bad Name. Stop it. Quentin, stop. He'll hear this. He'll listen to me. This will be the end of the line for him doing it. He understands now. (laughs) This has been kind of a subdued podcast because I used all of my energy killing a water bug that I thought was a giant spider. I hope you have enjoyed it anyway. (laughs) <laughs> also, again, I hate to plug it again, but uh, if ever you were to consider donating, I'm really trying to make like five to $600 so that I can go and retrieve all of my belongings from a storage unit in New York. It would also... I just need to do this for so many reasons. I can't... So many reasons. I can't tell you how much I want my belongings back and how much I want to stop paying $120 a month for the storage unit. It would be a Christmas miracle. Uh, so if ever anyone wanted to donate to the production, there is a PayPal and a cash app attached to the email, the sweaty Oracle email, which is juicy theater at gmail.com. And that's theater with an R E because we're classy. I also have Zell, but you can email me at that email for that. If uh, and yeah, if you notice a hard audio cut right there, it is because I dropped my microphone. <laughs> and with that, I think we are ending uh, this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. It's not as high energy as usual, but uh, you know. I'm I'm flying by the seat of my pants. As always, you can use that email mentioned before, JuicyTheaterTee at gmail.com, to write in any tips, insider information, blind items, things you want reported anonymously, or topics you want discussed. And besides that, I love you. Let me look you in the eyes. I love you you're a good person it's okay to make mistakes bye